much, and uh, well, I'll be uh, 33 tomorrow, because because I was born in 1960, and then I was born again in 1981. So, so, all right. If you open up to um, uh, Luke chapter three, we're just going to look at that real quick. But uh, uh, I want to give one more message on uh, the birth of Christ. So we're going to look real quick at the genealogies. Why are they different in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel? And then we're going to uh, answer the question, why God the Son became a man? If he became a man, there had to be some good reason for it, and we're going to find out there's lots of good reasons for it. And there's a primary reason that we should all remember, but uh, but there's lots uh, lots of good reasons why God the Son became a man. So, uh, so let's go to the Lord in, in, in prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we love you, Lord, and we, we thank you for uh, uh, the, this past year. We know there's been some high points and some low points, but whether we're in the mountains or the valleys, you're there with us. You comfort your people. And, you know, as we study the scriptures and we look at the great saints, the Old Testament saints like Abraham and the New Testament saints like Paul, and sometimes we're just amazed by how faithful they they were to you, and it makes us even wonder, why do you even give us the time of day? But you love us. You loved us so much that you sent your son. And so I pray, Lord, that every day would be Christmas for us, that we'd be grateful and give thanks that your son became a man to save us, But I also pray that every day would be Easter. Know that your son died for our sins and then rose from the dead to conquer death for us. So today as we look at your word, I pray that it would be your word, your truth that would be proclaimed. And so that you would cancel myself, the, the fallible man. I pray that you would anoint me with your spirit and empower me to proclaim your truth so that I would not lead anyone astray. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you'd empower us, enlighten our minds to understand your word, empower us to apply your word, and help us to, to live for you and for your son and your spirit through your strength and for your glory, uh, but live for you, not for ourselves, and to build your kingdom, not our own. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Well, I just wanted to touch on this in the uh, Christmas season and the messages, I wanted us to understand that the uh, there's a lot of differences between Jesus' genealogy found in Matthew's gospel and his genealogy found, his family tree found in Luke's gospel. Okay? And, um, and if, if you're looking at Luke chapter 3, I only want you to look at... Um, one uh, verse there, and that's Luke 3, verse 31. And um, it says, uh, the son of uh, Melia, the son of Manan, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Okay? And, um, you know, this starts out, too, in verse 23. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Keep in mind there that 
your, in your Bibles that probably the son of is italicized, okay? Um, except for the word son is there for Joseph. After that, it's just italicized. So you could translate it, you know, literally being supposed son of Joseph, of Heli, of Methat, of Levi, and it just goes on the line, and it goes all the way down to David's son, uh, Nathan. Now, when you look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus is given there. And, uh, and in verse 6, it says, And Jesse begot David the king, David the king begot Solomon, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And um, so you have to understand that in Matthew's gospel, it's a different genealogy of Jesus than it is in Luke's gospel. Okay? In Matthew's gospel, it's through David's son, Solomon. That is what I would call the royal line, the line of Jewish kings. Okay? The Old Testament says over and over again that the Messiah will be the son of of David, okay, uh, a descendant of David, nowhere does it say he's going to be a son of Solomon. So this is the royal line, and, uh, and I, I think when you, when you read Matthew's gospel, there's a debate among scholars on this, but there's certainly a significant number of scholars who agree with me on this, but we know that Matthew's gospel, Matthew seemed to get his information from Joseph. He could talk about contents of a dream that he had and decisions that he made. Whereas Luke's gospel, apparently Joseph was already dead, and Luke got his information from Mary about a private visit she had with Elizabeth and her thoughts and her prayer. And so it would only make sense that in Matthew's gospel, and he's looking for... Uh, the Jewish Messiah. So for him, the royal line of Jewish kings is, is the most important thing, okay? But he mentions in this passage in verses 18 to 25 that Jesus happened to be born of a virgin. So this is the royal line, not Jesus' biological line. Whereas the line of Mary, Mary's name is not mentioned in Luke, but no females' names are mentioned in Luke. So it says, well, Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph, but he's of Heli. Well, who's Heli? Probably Mary's father, okay? And, um, and so he comes in that line. So it's Mary's genealogy in Luke, okay? The biological line in Matthew, it's Joseph's genealogy. It's the royal line through David's son, Solomon. Now, why is that important? Well, let's look at a passage in Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah 22. In verses 28 through 30. Now, Jeconiah, they do this with a lot of the Jewish kings and their names and the Israelite kings and their names, sometimes there's three or four different ways to, to 
spell or write out the same name. And Kaniah there is Jeconiah. And so Jeremiah 22, 28 to 30, it's called Jeconiah's Curse. And it reads, is this man Kaniah, that's Jeconiah, a despised broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they did not know? The Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem, and they took him and the royal family captive. And what they did was then they set up a puppet king. I think it was his, his uncle, uh, Zedekiah, who wasn't in the royal line, set him up as king. Now, he eventually ticked off the Babylonians, so they killed his two sons in his view and then put out his eyes. So the last memory he would have was of his sons being killed, and they threw him in a dungeon in Babylon, whereas uh, Jeconiah eventually got to sit at the table with King Nebuchadnezzar and be treated like royalty himself. But verse 29, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Okay, this is Jeconiah's curse. God said, this guy is going to be so cursed, none of his descendants. And Zedekiah wasn't one of his descendants. It was like his uncle or something, another relative, but wasn't in his direct line. He sat on the throne, and the Babylonians took over. And uh, this was probably one of the most uh, pessimistic passages in the Old Testament because the Jews were longing for the coming of the Messiah. They wanted Messiah to come. And then here it says that the royal line is going to be cut off because of Jeconiah's curse. So how could you have the Jewish Messiah, a descendant of David, somehow, some way through the royal line, sitting on the throne when the royal line has been cursed? Okay? Well, in the very next chapter, I'm sure that many of the Jewish rabbis and scholars read that and were just... Like, man, what's in the world? How is God going to turn this around? Well, in verses 5 and 6, it doesn't tell, doesn't tell us how God's going to turn it around, but it does tell us that God does turn it around. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, the very next chapter. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Notice, not Solomon, not the royal line of kings, but still a son of David. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. That's the only righteousness we have. If you think you're getting to heaven on your own righteousness, you're still hellbound. The only righteousness that will get, God demands perfect righteousness. We can't achieve that in our own strength. So the only way we can have perfect righteousness is if it's given to us as a gift when we trust in Jesus for salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay? He took our sin. We trusted him for salvation. 
His righteousness is imputed or credited to our account. And so Yahweh Sidkenu, the Jewish Messiah, will come and will be a descendant of David. And so probably many of the Jews said, I don't know how God's going to work that out, but he's going to work it out. Okay? What Matthew does in, in, by giving us Joseph's genealogy, um, Jesus' line, the royal line through Solomon, uh, Jesus, that line was under Jeconiah's curse. Jesus, uh, if Jesus were biologically in that line, he would not be qualified to reign. Um, yet you had to be in that line to reign. Well, as, as Joseph's firstborn, not biologically, but through adoption, Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. Joseph, by naming Jesus, adopted him. That was recognized in ancient times. And, and Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. Okay? So Jesus was adopted into the royal line, yet... He's not under Jeconiah's curse. Even his brothers, James, his half-brothers, James, Judas, Simeon, um, they would have had Jeconiah's blood running through their veins. But Jesus, as Joseph's adopted firstborn, not biological, but through adoption, is in the royal line, but he's not under Jeconiah's curse. But that's not enough. You still have to be a descendant of David. Because the Bible clearly says that a biological descendant of David will reign in righteousness, okay? And, um, and sit on the throne of David. And that's where Mary's genealogy comes in. In the Greek, it is, it is allowable, if not preferable, that uh, it is stated in such a way that even though Mary's name is not mentioned, it's almost assumed because the whole account is Mary's account. And it's like, well, Jesus was thought to be Joseph's son, but I just explained that he was actually born to the Virgin Mary, and he was of Heli's line, and then he goes on through there. And the son of is not even mentioned in the, in the Greek. It's just of Heli, of so-and-so, right down the line. And so this enabled Jesus to be qualified as the Jewish Messiah. There may have been no one else who was qualified to be the Jewish Messiah at that time. I can't even envision somebody else being, because he had to be adopted into the royal line, yet not have Jeconiah's blood running through his veins, yet also be a direct descendant of King David. How was that accomplished? The virgin birth and then adoption into the royal uh, line. And so those are, that's, those are the reasons why the genealogies are different there. Um, I think this also argues for an early, very early date for Matthew's gospel because he apparently he had direct access to Joseph before Joseph died. And if Joseph lived at all into Jesus' public ministry, he apparently died early on. And, um, and just the fact that, you, you know, where would you keep the genealogical records, even for Luke, for Mary's uh, genealogy? Uh, probably in the temple. And the temple is destroyed 70 A.D. So I think Matthew and Luke are written much earlier than a lot of our pastors are saying today. And I would not, I'm, I'm considered pretty radical for holding that, those views. Even, I got all four Gospels written before 60 A.D., probably from the 30s to the 
uh, mid-50s AD. That's considered pretty radical. That was not radical. That was the norm before uh, Darwinian evolution and enlightenment rationalism made its way into the universities and the seminaries where we were trained professors. And then we started critiquing the Bible and denying Moses as the author. And it's really sad that even in the believing church, we've embraced so much thought uh, that we really shouldn't have. Um, but whatever the case, um, I think that explains uh, the genealogies there. Um, you, and you'll find things like this. If you, if you study the word closely, I mean, Jesus was crucified on the Passover feast. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he is our Passover lamb. Guess what? You go back to Exodus 12 with the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb, God would not accept the Passover lamb that had any broken bones. So that's why it was important for Jesus to be dead already when the Roman soldier came to break the legs um, of those who were still alive on the cross and instead his side was pierced, which is also predicted in the Old Testament. And so you'll find these little clues to the Messiah running throughout the scriptures. Well, right now what I want to do is answer the question, why God the Son became a man? Why God the Son became a man? And if you have the notes, you'll see that number two is uh, in boldface. And that's because if, if you don't remember anything else as the answer to the question, this is the most important thing, okay? And number two is, you know, to die for us and to save us from our sins, okay? And so keep that in mind. But reason number one that I put down here is because God, because God loves us. Because he loves us, that's why he wanted to save us. And uh, look at uh, John 3, 16 and 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. We should all know John 3, 16. Um, it used to be the most famous verse for Americans. Now it's uh, Matthew 7, 1, don't judge, which is not really what it says or means. It says if you want to avoid judgment, if you've got skeletons in your closet, don't be critical of others because it's going to come back to haunt you someday. Okay? And... Uh, uh, get the log out of your eye, then you can help people with the splinter out of their eye. But John 3.16 used to be everybody's favorite uh, verse at one time. And so why, why God the Son became a man, point number one, because God loves us. John 3.16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Okay? So God loved us so much. And I, I'm one of those Bible teachers who believes that when it says that God loved the world, it means the whole world. God loves all mankind. He sent his son to die on the cross for all mankind. But God loves all mankind so what he did was he gave us his only begotten son. And that's not his only begotten son. That's God giving us his son by God the son becoming a man. But he also gave him to us as a sacrifice that whoever believes in him, trusts in him alone for salvation, um, would not spiritually perish but would have everlasting life. 
you know, I mean, can you imagine how many Americans are not going to turn to Jesus and are going to end up burning in hell forever and ever? Yet, if the person lived to be a hundred, they probably celebrated a hundred Christmases. And, um, you know, never, never let Christmas pass by. Never let a day pass by without recommitting your life to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm trusting in you for salvation. This is not believing about Jesus. Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus is God and Savior and uh, that he died on the cross for our sins, but I don't want to really trust in him for salvation. There's, there's people who, who actually, you know, I always say true spirituality equals propositional truth, true doctrines, plus personal relationship. When you, you believe the right things about Jesus, that head knowledge, but then you've got to apply it to your heart and say, okay, now I'm going to trust in Jesus for salvation. There's a, I've, I've actually talked to certain people who have no problem. They acknowledge Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. He became a man to die on the cross for our sins to save us, and they won't believe. Some of them were Satanists. Some accepted so much of the Bible, they just want to change the last few chapters. They want to side with Satan. They don't want to bend the knee. I've heard other people who acknowledge, yeah, Jesus is God and Savior, and sometimes they'll think, yeah, but I've done, if you knew the bad things I've done, there's no forgiveness for me. And that's like, that's not humility on your part. That's you demoting King Jesus. Your sins are never bigger than King Jesus. The only sin, I think the Bible calls it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the only sin that Jesus cannot forgive is the sin of totally rejecting him, total heart denial of him as your Lord and Savior to the point of death. And some people actually commit that at some point in their life. They make that final decision. And uh, most people probably don't make that final decision till their, their deathbed as the Holy Spirit's calling out to them. They're saying no. And... Um, um, uh, so you got to do more than just believe the right things about Jesus. Once you believe the right things about yourself, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself, the right things about Jesus, he is God's Savior and Messiah, um, the right things about salvation, I need to trust in him for salvation, then you got to do it. you got to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, believe in Jesus, trust in him for salvation to receive eternal life. And so the, God's word says God didn't send his son into the world to condemn us. Why not? Because we condemned ourselves already. We blew it in the garden. We inherited a fallen nature from Adam and Eve. It's just natural for us to sin. We're already condemned. Okay? He didn't have to send Jesus to condemn us. We're already condemned. We condemned ourselves. So he sent Jesus to save us. Why? Because he loved us. So in verse 18, it says, he who believes in him is not condemned. You realize everybody in this room deserves to be condemned by God? But we're saved by God's grace, which means he gives us the salvation we don't deserve, the salvation we could not earn. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness. Oh, uh, verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Don't say, Jesus sent me to hell. You sent yourself to hell. I, had, I did a, 
interview. You can listen to it on Sermon Audio. Caught off, we called it Caught Off Guard by an Atheist. The guy pretended he was a Christian with a radio interview show, and he started asking me weird questions. I thought, what kind of Christian is this? And all of a sudden it dawned on me, like, I was caught like a deer in the headlights 10 minutes into the interview, and I'm like, a live interview. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, this guy is a fire-breathing atheist. So there was no time to prepare nice ways to respond. <laughs> Pastor Phil, the, the nice guy, it was a New Jersey brawl. And, uh, and, uh, and I thought, gee, you know, I kind of blew my top at the guy, but he was a jerk, so is this something? I thought, you know what? It's, it was real. So if people want to call me, uh, you know, uh, obnoxious guy, so be it. You know, but the guy kept saying, how could God be just if he's going to send me to hell just because I don't believe this or that and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And, and so finally I said, well, do you know what heaven is? I said, there's only two choices. God created the universe, and there's only two choices, heaven or hell. There's no third door, okay? So there's only heaven or hell. You know what heaven do people do in heaven? So yeah, they play harps. I said, nah, don't, don't. You're watching too many cartoons there. Um, Heaven is a place where you serve and worship the triune God forever and ever and ever. And you know what he said? He said, I'd hate to go there. And I said, well, that's your decision. Gee, apparently Jesus didn't, isn't sending you to hell. You're choosing to go there. That's why C.S. Lewis used to say the door to hell is locked, but it's locked from the inside. People don't want to be in hell, but they certainly don't want to be in heaven, worshiping Jesus um, forever and ever. And, uh, but because we already condemned ourselves, um, you know, verse 36 of John 3, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. God's eternal wrath remains on those who do not trust in Jesus for salvation. Uh, but reason number one why God the Son became a man, because God loves us. You know, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Christ can't die for us and take on our sin unless he becomes a man. You can't have Calvary without the manger. You can't have the wooden cross without the manger. God the Son has to become a man. He became a man because God loves us. You know, some of us are, you know, I, I've, I've been blessed. I've been, my life, there's always been people who love me. And uh, a lot of relatives in Jersey as a non-believer, a lot of people, a lot of my family members love me. I wanted to be Joe Cool. So I worshiped myself, and I conned quite a few people into at least acting like they loved me, you know? And, um, and then when I came to Christ, guess what? Even more people loved me. I got a bigger family, a bigger spiritual family here in Washington State um, than I had back in Jersey, uh, the flesh and blood family. Um, but not everybody's been so sheltered in their lives. Now, I don't know you. I don't know what you've been through. 
Some of you had periods in your life. I hope not now because of TBF, Trinity Bible Fellowship, because of God's people in Kitsap County. hope you wouldn't say it now, but many, many of us probably had times in our, our lives when we felt alone. And we felt like no one loved us. I, I, I am so overwhelmed to be a Christian, not a Muslim. Muslims aren't trying to attain God's love. They can't even hope for God's love. God is just this brutal, cruel God in Islam. But in Christianity, it's for God so loved the world. God loves you. You might be abandoned by all your friends. Not only does God loves you, but he's been through it himself. He knows what it's like to be forsaken. He knows what it's like to be alone, be battered and beaten, to be nailed to a cross. And we always look at it, man, I feel so cursed. I'm going through such a difficult time. When you're going through difficult times, you get a little glimpse of what Jesus went through. And any opportunity to be more like Jesus and less like you is a good opportunity. Now, do I view it that way when I'm hurting? No, I complain. Scream like a baby. But... Um, but no matter how bad things get, and believe me, in this country, things are going to get real bad. No matter how bad things get, you could always look up to heaven and say, God, at least I know you love me. The triune God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God loves you. And he demonstrated it by sending his son to become a man and to die on the cross for our sins. So God demonstrated his love toward us. God is more, the Christian concept of God is more loving than the concept of any other of the world's major religions. Other religions could say, well, God loves you, but I mean, I don't know what that would mean. Traditional Buddhism, they didn't even believe God existed. They didn't even believe it was relevant. Traditional um, Hinduism, God's a non-personal force. Incapable of love. Only persons can love. Judaism, the present state where they've rejected Jesus as their Messiah, they can say that Yahweh loves you, but until they embrace Jesus, they can't say, Yahweh loves me so much, he sacrificed his own son, his beloved son in my place. The God of Christianity loves us more than any other concept of God whatsoever. But he's also more just, and that's reason number two. Um, why God the Son became a man? Because God loves us. And then number two, God the Son became a man to die for us in order to save us from our sins. That's why John the Baptist could say in John one twenty nine when he saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And um, look at uh, Luke 19, verse 10. Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, and verse 10. And Jesus said this, For the Son of Man, that's what he called himself, the Son of Man, has come to seek and to save 
that which was lost. Why did Jesus come? He said, I, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And a lot of us were thinking, oh, man, I was, boy, I was seeking God. Well, what do you mean you were seeking God? He was seeking you. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, Adam didn't say, well, God, God, where are you? Adam and Eve, where were they? They were hiding in the bushes. They realized they were naked. They were hiding in the bushes. So God said, Adam, where are you? God seeks us because he wants to save us. And, um, and so we might think we were seeking God, but we're probably hanging, in the bu- hanging out, hiding in the bushes until eventually um, the Lord Jesus started shining his light and drawing us out through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why C.S. Lewis, who was a great defender of free will, still said, I came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. You know, I had a professor at Liberty said to God, to save somebody, God holds no man at gunpoint. And I said, he does worse than that. He dangles us on a string over the flames of hell. He doesn't threaten us with physical death. He's, he says, hey, you're, you're going to hell if you don't trust in my son for salvation. But it's kind of like when we say no to Jesus, it's like the Lord, the Holy Spirit grabs us by the collar, throws us against the wall, smacks us around, says, say, uncle. He twists our arm. And guess what most of us do? We refuse to bend the knee. And so those of us who come to Christ, you know, we're not going to heaven singing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, okay? We got a Savior that sought us out. He was seeking for me, okay? Now, I had to make that choice, but believe me, there was an awful lot of heavy divine persuasion. God can be very persuasive, and so those of us who trusted in Jesus for salvation... Um, we needed a lot of convincing. Um, most people on earth, it doesn't matter how much God tries to persuade them, they still say no. Uh, but Jesus came to die for us and to save us from our sins. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. And Peter says this about Jesus, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Okay? And so he's telling us that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we would die to sins and be saved and live for righteousness. He talks about this in the next chapter, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for all, the just, that's Jesus, the totally righteous one, the perfect one, the just for the unjust. I told you, you know, God loves you. You might feel like nobody loves me, nobody cares about me. Look, God loves you, Okay. You might think, I'm not important. You're, you're so important, you're actually mentioned in the Bible. 
Lots and lots of times. You know, um, sometimes it's, it's not amen stuff, but other times it is amen stuff. But he's like, when it's, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's you. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's me. We're in there, okay? Um, for God so loved the world. Guess what? That's me. God loves me. And then here, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. We're mentioned again, okay? We're the unjust ones who don't deserve to go to heaven. Uh, a lot of Christians think, wow, you know, before I got saved, I didn't deserve to go to heaven. Well, that's true. But after you got saved, you still don't deserve to go to heaven. Okay? Grace not only saved you, grace is going to bring you home. Okay? Now, I will say this. Do I understand the scriptures? Only those who persevere till the end, who persevere in the faith, will go to heaven. Now, I don't believe a true believer could lose their salvation, so if you don't persevere, I think that's evidence that you're not saved, okay? But this idea that you could just walk away from the Lord, do your own thing, and you're still saved, I don't want to be in your shoes on a judgment day, okay? And, um, um, but the scriptures teach that God the Son became a man to die for us and to save us from our sins, to be the ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice for our sins. Look, look at Romans 3. I don't have it in the notes. But Romans 3. And um, start at verse 23. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, being declared righteous by God, being justified freely, it wasn't something we earn, by his grace, unmerited favor, through the redemption. Jesus paid the price by dying on the cross for our sins. He redeemed us from, uh, from hell. He redeemed us from uh, the, the penalty that our sins have earned through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation, a sacrifice. You know, God is totally just. He must judge and punish all sin before it can be forgiven. But God is satisfied with the death of his son. Nobody needs to go to hell. Jesus already paid the price for you. Okay? You don't need to go to hell. If you're going to hell, it's because you don't want to go to heaven. You don't want to worship uh, Jesus. And, uh, but God set Jesus forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate what? To demonstrate his love? No, in this passage to demonstrate his righteousness, his justice. Because in the forbearance of God, in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate, demonstrate at the present time what? His love? No, his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in, in Jesus. Um, what is it saying? Just two chapters later, Paul is not contradicting himself by saying that when Jesus died on the cross, God demonstrated his own love for us. How much does God love us? Look at his son on the cross of Calvary. 
He loved us so much. By the, by the way, I don't have the ability to have that kind of love. Okay? You know, we're still, God's still working on us. But believe me, I'm not going to sacrifice. I don't love you so much that I sacrifice my, my, my daughter or grandson. Okay? God loved us so much, he sacrificed his only begotten son for us. How much does God love us? Just look at Jesus nailed to the cross. Okay? How just is God? God is so just that the only way for sinners like you and me to get to heaven, he had to pour his wrath down upon his son. And so when you want to see how just is God, you look at Jesus on the cross. He, he's not, God cannot sweep sin under the rug. Judaism and Islam, the present state of Judaism, where they reject Jesus, um, what is it, God sweeping sin under the rug? Well, you repented, you turned from your sin. Well, big deal, you didn't pay the price for it. And you can't pay the price for it. See, each sin, no matter how, quote, unquote, small it is, all sin is rebellion against God, who is the ultimately worthy being. Okay? That means justice demands that the punishment fit the crime. It's not how big is your sin. It's how big is the one you offended. And so all sin, even the smallest sin, is rebellion against the ultimately worthy being, which then makes us deserving of the ultimate in punishment. And guess what the ultimate in punishment is? Eternal conscious torment. The eternal lake of fire, Gehenna what we commonly call hell. Now, if there's going to be a substitute sacrifice for our sins, the, the substitute sacrifice has to be ultimately worthy. It has to be God. But guess what? God can't be sacrificed. God as God cannot die. So in order to represent man, to become one of us, to share in our humanity but to also die as a sacrifice for us, God the Son had to become a man. Okay? And you can look through the pages of history on the incarnation by Athanasius and then Anselm's Why the God-Man. They got most of that right. I think centuries later, we started really putting all the pieces together. Okay? But God demonstrates both his infinite justice and his infinite love on the cross of Calvary, okay? And so for a person to say, you know, um, Galatians 2, uh, I think it's verse 21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So if you think you're going to save yourself through your own human effort, through your own works, you're actually calling Jesus of Nazareth a fool. You're saying, well, he thought he needed to become a man. He thought he needed to die on the cross for my sins, but I don't need his sacrifice. I can do it on my own. We have to be very careful, we American Christians, because we're befriending, we befriend anybody who's politically conservative, even if they're an atheist. And by the way, I have friends who are non-believers and all. But we almost, we act like, you know, this person doesn't need Jesus. 
we've got some very conservative Jewish guys like Ben Shapiro and Dennis Prager. And it just seems like sometimes nobody, no Christians even want to witness to them. We don't, we want, we need friends. We can't be picky. They're politically conservative. They stand for traditional values. They like biblical morality. Yeah, but if you love the guy, why not tell him about Jesus? Anybody who thinks they're going to heaven through their own effort is calling Jesus of Nazareth a fool because God the Son became a man to die for us and to save us from, from our sins. There was no other way for us to be saved. He had to be the ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice for our sins. This is why Jesus prayed the night he was betrayed. If, if there's any other possible way, let this cup of suffering and death pass from me. I mean, what, what person who has humanity? Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, but he added a human nature. What person who has a human nature enjoys suffering and death? So if possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Guess what? There was no other way for us to be saved. And so Jesus took the cross. He took the scourging. He took the insults. He took the betrayal. He took the denials. He struck him in the face. They battered him. They beat him. And he let, carried his cross after the scourging. They nailed him to the cross, and he took our suffering for us. Okay? Jesus paid the price for our sins. And so why did God the Son become a man? Because God loves us, and there was no other way to save us from our sins than God the Son becoming a man and dying for us, representing mankind, becoming one of us, and dying on the cross for our sins. Um, he also, uh, why God the Son became a man, to defeat death for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 22. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. He rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits. Uh, he's a down payment guaranteeing the payment in full. He, his resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all true believers. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For since by man came death, Adam failed in the temptation. Jesus overcame the temptations, Matthew chapter 4, the three temptations of Satan. And then Satan probably tempted him throughout his life. Since by man came death, that was Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam, all die. We're all children of Adam. And we're spiritually dead until we trust in Jesus for salvation. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, some people will act like, oh, so everybody's going to be saved. That's not what this is saying. This is saying if you're in Adam, that's all human beings, if you're in Adam, you die. 
okay, you spiritually die. But if you're in Christ, well, what do you got to do to be in Christ? You got to trust in Jesus for salvation. So everyone in Christ shall be made alive, shall be born again, okay? So it's not teaching everybody in the world is going to be saved. It's just saying everybody in the world who turns to the Lord Jesus for salvation will be saved. And um, saving us from, among other things, saving us from, from death. And then verse 51, in fact, take verse 50 through 57 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. But I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. Some people will be alive. Some believers will be alive when Jesus returns. But I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Okay, what kind of change in the twinkling of an eye? Let me tell you something, if the Shroud of Turin is authentic, we cannot, I don't, don't listen to bozos on the internet, just because the guy's got a good website doesn't mean he knows what he's talking about. But the Shroud of Turin, there is so much definition, so much detail in the image that uh, in the photographic negative of it is where all the information gets displayed for us, um, that we don't have the, even with nuclear technology, we do not have the ability to produce something like that, okay? Some kind of bombardment to this cloth with a deceased man in the state of rigor mortis who is not yet suffering any decay. God would not allow his Holy One's body to see decay. Somehow a change occurred to that dead body. And it's not just like Lazarus, he came back to life. If you found Lazarus's shroud, it wouldn't have Lazarus's image on it. His dead mortal body came back to life, so it was once again a living mortal body, so that eventually Lazarus died a second time. Jesus was a, man, Jesus was a disaster at debates and funerals. Everybody goes, oh, all the greatest theologians on earth, the Jewish rabbis are going to debate Jesus. They're going to stump Jesus. This is going to be a great debate. They'd ask him a question. He said, well, answer your question. You can answer mine. And they couldn't answer his question. The debate's over. It's like a Mike Tyson fight. You spend big money, and a minute and a half later, it's over. You know, it's like I paid $60 for this and, um, um, and funerals. You spend all this money and prepare the guy's funeral. Jesus comes and raises him from the dead. It's like, oh, no, 10 years from now, we've got to go through this again. And, um, uh, but, but Lazarus just was returned to mortal life. But what you have with Jesus, he's the firstborn from the dead. You have Jesus in his mortal body, a body capable of death because he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Even though he was without sin, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, a mortal body. His mortal body was transfigured in the twinkling of an eye, Paul says. So this bombardment of energy 
enters into the body so much that it leaves a three-dimensional image on the cloth, yet it doesn't burn through the cloth. Anytime we try to get more details with light or heat or some kind of chemical thing, we burn through the cloth. So we don't even have the technology to do this. But that's what's going to happen to us. In the twinkling of an eye, our mortal bodies will put on immortality. And the kind of change um, that's going to occur. So we're going to be like Jesus. Jesus did not go through walls. Okay, He traveled at the speed of thought. He could be at the Father's right hand and say, I want to be in the upper room with the apostles. Boom, he's there. Okay? And um, um, we need to proclaim the resurrection more. So, the, so then in verse 54, picking it up, so when this corruptible, the mortal body, has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, this goes back to the book of Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. See, don't look to the law for salvation. The law is good. The law shows us God's holy standards. But once you know the law, you can't obey it in your own strength because you're not perfect. You can't obey God from the heart. So uh, the law just emphasizes. I mean, if you're driving 50 through a residential area, a speed limit sign that says 20, it just amplifies the fact that you're doing wrong, okay? And so the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over what? The victory over death. And I think we're going to just pick this up next week. And so why did God the Son became a man? Because God loves us, you know? That's why people who had a loving father are much more likely um, to understand that relationship with God than people who had a bad relationship with their dad. Sometimes it just takes longer. But if you had a loving father like I did, praise God. But maybe let's say you didn't have a loving father like Sigmund Freud, Friedrich Nietzsche, and some of the world's leading militant atheists. Let's say you had a bad relationship with, with your dad. We got a God who's the father to the fatherless. We got a God who has the ability to love that which is unlovable, i.e., you and me. We got a God who loves us. There's difficult times coming ahead. And you're going to need to cling to those three words there. God loves me. God loves me. And you got powerful people. We'll talk about this next week. But you got powerful people going to want to stomp you down because of your faith in Christ. So three more words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Not the guy in the White House. Not Klaus Schwab or the World Economic Forum. Not Bill Gates. Jesus is Lord. And we got politicians right now. They want to put you in prison if you just if you disagree with them. Eventually, they're going to want to exterminate you if you disagree with them. The Bible says in the last days, we'll be hated in all nations. Christians and Jews will be hated in all nations. 
So you remember, God loves me, and Jesus is Lord. Why God the Son became a man? Because God loves us. Uh, and also, God the Son became a man to die for us and to save us from our sins. God loved us so much. God the Son loved us so much that he died for us. And he became a man to defeat man's greatest enemy, the grave, to defeat death for us. So I think a fitting way to end this today, and then we'll pick it up next week. Um, but the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, because Jesus conquered the grave. Okay? But believe me, as a preacher, man, I've, I've preached memorial services for little tiny babies, for elderly people in their 80s and 90s, middle-aged people. we got a God who loves us, a God who died for us, and a God who conquered man's greatest enemy, conquered death for us. Even Blaise Pascal said, imagine a number, there's this long line, number of men, and each one is being executed, one after another. And you know your number is coming up. And then he said, this is the human condition. You reach a point in life where you realize Someday it's going to be my funeral. Someday it's going to be me. So Blaise Pascal says, look, because of death, the wise man, well, he said only two kinds of guys that could be called wise. Those who love God with all their hearts, serve God with all their hearts because they know him, and those who seek God with all their hearts because they don't know him. So he would say only the fool would say, I don't believe God exists well, then death wins. And so if death is our greatest enemy, you either find deliverance from death through Jesus and the power of his resurrection, or if you're wise and you don't know him, you seek for deliverance from death. And that can only be found at the manger, the wooden cross, and the empty tomb. And so because God loves us, because God the Son died for us to save us from our sins, um, because God the Son became a man to defeat death for us, because he has conquered death through his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, therefore, and this is for all of us here, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Are you steadfast? Or are you wishy-washy in your walk? Be steadfast, immovable, are you immovable in your walk for the Lord? If Jesus, if Jesus walked up to you today, would he call you rock like he did to Peter? Peter was up and down, but he saw the rock-hard faith Peter would eventually have through the power of the Holy Spirit. you got to be immovable in your faith for Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because Jesus rose from the dead, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Some of you served Jesus yesterday. Hopefully all of you served Jesus yesterday. Hopefully I served Jesus yesterday. I mean, I watched a couple dumb football games that I didn't really care about, so there was some laziness, but 
there were some things I did that God was calling me to do, and I went out there and got it done. Some of you served Jesus yesterday, and you think, you know what, I'm kind of tired. I'm a little weary. Maybe I should have got more rest yesterday. Let me tell you, the service you did for King Jesus yesterday and for his people, you love God with everything you got, you love your neighbors yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. The service that you did yesterday, even when nobody was looking. The God who loves us is the God who sees. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus has conquered the grave, because God loves us, Jesus died for our sins and conquered the grave. The work you do for the Lord. is not in vain. Don't, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Fight the battles. I don't care how tired, how beat up you get. Fight the battles God's called you to. Sometimes it's hard to figure out which battles... God want me to fight. Does God want me just pastoring this church and teaching the Bible at the high school? Or does God also want me to, you know, make a contribution on the international level and get back in the debates or whatever? Whatever battles God's called you to do, don't grow weary in doing good. Okay? The joy of the Lord is our strength and the work that we do. For King Jesus is not in vain. Why? Because he loved us. Because he died for us. And because he rose from the dead. He's conquered the grave. 